This evening I want to, in a sense, bring us full circle. On the very first full day of the retreat, I started by giving some instructions to the practices that we've been following through the week. And tonight I want to examine a little bit about mindfulness, if you're not sick of the word by this time, um, in a little bit more detail. Um, what's actually going on, the way the tradition views it, and the kind of metaphors that are used about mindfulness in the tradition, because it's a very highly nuanced um, subject. It's a very highly nuanced aspect of mind that we start to talk about when we examine it within Buddhist psychology. And so I hope to give you a slightly different perspective on what's going on in mindfulness um, this evening. But before I do that, again, I want to read you a piece of text, um, because the Buddha pursues this path of mindfulness and recommends we pursue this path of mindfulness, obviously for a reason. Uh, The reason is to wake up. The reason is actually how to interact with others as well. And there's a very very interesting and very telling, um, what I would call a very personal revelation in one of the oldest parts of the Pali Canon. The Pali Canon is the is the, in some senses the area is the collection of texts in which is preserved some of the oldest aspects of Buddhist thought and practice, um, collecting together the discourses of the Buddha in one particular place. And then one of the oldest portions um, that basically we think is probably very original um, to the time of the Buddha himself, uh, we find this, and it's out of a sutta which is called the Atadanda Sutta, which is nice. It's the embracing of sticks. Um, so it's about violence actually (laughs) and the the Buddha himself says very personally why he comes to this path why he comes to this path of mindfulness he says fear comes to one who embraces violence look at people quarrelling let me tell you of the strong agitation that I felt seeing people struggling like fish in shallow water with enmity towards one another I became fearful. Wanting a safe place to shelter, I saw that the world lacked substance and there was not one part of it that was changeless. Seeing people trapped in mutual enmity, I grew dissatisfied. Then I saw buried in their hearts a barb that was difficult to perceive. It was this barb that impels people to run in all directions. Once it is pulled out, the running ceases, as does the exhaustion that inevitably accompanies it. I mean, in a way, it sounds quite modern, although it's couched in quite, um, quite ancient languages. Um, the idea of the exhaustion that accompanies from running in all directions, does that sound familiar at all? <laughs> you know, we tend to run in all directions, but what impels us to do this Well, this becomes the starting place for the Buddha's investigations. I find something very personal, as I say, in this particular passage. It's um, it's something which is almost like a personal revelation of saying why he gets started in this path. Notice how he says how he's fearful, how he can't find one place in this world which is actually outside of change. The topic that I touched on the other night, on Monday night when I spoke... So, eventually he comes, after the so-called awakening, um, to this path which he recommends to us, which is this path of mindfulness, of wakefulness. Um, And actually, what we're looking at is a path towards waking up. And the path towards waking up is a path of cultivation. Um, I hate to tell you, but actually, within Buddhist languages, there's actually no word for meditation. meditation is actually a western invention Um, it comes from the Christian traditions Uh, within Buddhist um, languages the word particularly in Pali and Sanskrit is a word which is bhavana which actually I think is far more valuable than the word meditation it's a word which means and I think we've used it over this week is is actually cultivation we're engaged in the path of cultivation Cultivation leading towards waking up. Leading towards ways of behaving which actually will take this barb, this barb of craving, by the way, that's being mentioned here, this barb of craving out of our hearts so that we can find ease 
and a way of easing our way in equanimity through life as opposed to coming into argument and conflict not only with others but with life itself. So this is the path that we really um, are treading when we start to tread the path of mindfulness, starting to tread a path of leading and living a much more easeful life in this world, making our passage a lot smoother. If you think of what goes on in our ordinary life, so much of ordinary life is spent arguing with what goes on. We come into conflict with what goes on. There is no acceptance about this at all. Let's take this word, the word sati, which I introduced to you. This word is a word which, as I suggested to you on the very first day, doesn't really mean mindfulness. Mindfulness is, again, a 19th century coinage. Some of you might have come across this. It actually comes from the Gospels um, and was picked up by the early translators to translate this word sati. The word has much more direct connotations in the sense of this present moment recollection. It's actually derived from a Pali Sanskrit term which means to remember something, to recollect something. There's a whole tranche of Indian um, texts which are actually called smirti texts. And smirti is just a Sanskrit word for the word sati, uh, which actually texts which have been remembered Now, the word sati doesn't possess this connotation of historical memory, although it can have resonances of it. What it actually means is to recollect the present moment, to come back to what is going on in the present moment, to know what you are doing, to know what you are confronting in this present moment. Without the mind getting distracted, without the mind getting fragmented, and dispersed. In fact, not doing what we often do, which is papancha. This is the dispersal of the mind. The moment we get into papancha, and papancha is directly linked to what is going on in perceptual processes. And I want to say a little bit more about that as we go through. However, just a note, for any of you at all ever interested in looking at the early texts, out of all of the technical terms that you find in the Pali Canon in these early texts, the term sati is the one with the most frequency. It's way above any other technical term that the Buddha uses within it. He keeps referring to sati again and again and again and again and again. Through Huntnyo, in the English editions even, um, not even the Pali text editions, but the English editions, you'll find hundreds and hundreds of references over thousands of pages you know, towards this term sati. This is how important the Buddha considers this term. You know, this is, as he says, the direct path. He calls it an ekayana, the one path or the direct path to liberation, liberation from grieving, sorrow and lamentation. You know, In other words, the human condition um, that we live. This is what he considers to be the way to do it, the path that leads directly to it. You'll find this if you read the Satipatthana Sutta. This is all outlined in in the beginning of it. So what exactly is mindfulness as it's outlined in early Buddhist psychology? Mindfulness is a function or a quality of mind. It's a quality of mind which the Buddha believes everyone possesses. It might not be in full form, but it's certainly something which is there within, if if you, you forgive me for using this metaphor, but it's something which is there within the soup of the mind. This mind is a soup full of many, many ingredients, um, some of which are much, much more obvious than others. But one of the ingredients is the ingredient of mindfulness, which is there within the mind. This is a possession of all human psyches, according to the Buddhism. So, in a way, I feel slightly fraudulent sitting up here and saying, you know, talking in the Buddhist terms, because actually, and I say this in many situations, mindfulness isn't Buddhist at all. Mindfulness is simply human. You know, even if I'm not using present moment recollection and sticking with this term mindfulness, this very thing that we're talking about 
which we term mindfulness, is a human quality. A human quality which is the possession of all humanity and which everybody can develop. This is our potentiality. This takes it out of the realm of the religious. Um, I hesitate even to call uh, early Buddhism religious in the slightest way. Um, But it takes it completely out of that realm and puts it firmly back in the realm of human psychology. So it's something to be cultivated. You know, it's something not to be meditated on, but something to actively be cultivated. Now, I use that term deliberately, to be actively cultivated. In English, we often use the term meditation um, actually as a cop-out. Have you ever done this at all? You know, I'll go away and meditate on it. it generally, it means I'll go away and do an absolutely nothing about it whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is actually encouraging you to, to take part in the active cultivation of something. So mindfulness, even in its fairly nascent sense, is something that we can cultivate and bring to fruition. The actual word bhavana, which is the word which is being translated, is, is a lovely word in Pali because it actually comes from a root which means to grow something. It means to bring something into being. So what we're attempting to do in our so-called meditations as we sit on the cushion and as you encourage clients to look at what, they're going, what is going on in their minds is to engage in a form of cultivation, a form of growing something. This becomes even more important when we start talking about, obviously, meta. Well, I say more important, of equal importance when we're talking about meta. Meta isn't a nice idea. Meta is something to be cultivated. Yeah. Karuna, compassion, is something to be cultivated. Calmness is something to be cultivated. And in the traditions, all of these will have the appendage fixed to them of, for example, samatha bhavana. Yeah, in other words, the cultivation of calming. Metta bhavana, the cultivation of metta. Yeah. Vipassana bhavana, the cultivation of insight. So we're deliberately attempting to grow something. We're actively engaged. And as in, with any active engagement, there is a quality of attention and there is particularly a quality of energetics that we bring to that cultivation. So this is not a passive stance. This is something we are actively involved in. We are actively doing it. We're actively engaged in it. And I really want to stress that because it's not a passive response. This is an active engagement with what is actually happening in your own mind. An active attempt, in some senses, to direct that mind in particular ways. So metta becomes a mindfulness because not only am I cultivating it, I'm directing it in a particular way, mindfully and deliberately. Yeah. But we'll come back to a little bit more about that slightly later. So the practice of mindfulness, what we're engaging in, I'm giving you very much the way this is viewed within the tradition, consists in conducting the wholesome function of perception. I'll say that again because it might sound a little bit technical. It consists in conducting or directing the wholesome function of perception. Perception, as in the little formula that Christina gave you, the one that derives from another text in the Pali Canon, that which we contact, we feel. That which we feel, we perceive. And then so on and so forth. It goes on to say thinking and finally ends up in in proliferation. It finally ends up in papancha. Perception. This is considered to be one of the primary domains of our experience, what is going on all the time. We can actually focus in on it, um, and some meditational practices focus in on the whole aspect of what's going on in the perceptual process. What's going on in this perceptual process? What is actually involved in this perceptual process? This perceptual process is also a process of memory, It's really important. It's very much tied up with the function of being a self. 
why are we, why do we have, why do we possess the idea that we are a continuous thing moving through time is partly a function of memory, that we can remember past experience. You know, tag a lot of memories together and you have the idea of one constant thing moving through time from the age of, you know, being in a, in a, in, in, from a baby to being whatever age you are now. That this persistence through time is actually a product of memory. Memory is also there for the functioning of perception in remembering, for example, what we perceive, and very much, very important in the functioning of language. Now, without going into the details of this, because this could be a whole talk in itself, the function of perception, is that from the Buddha's point of view, our perceptive faculties go astray. They get caught up and tied up too much in repetition. repeating the same, repeating and bringing to perception the same association. So there's another element to this, which is it brings in tow all of the associations from previous perceptions. I think I gave you a little query the other night, do we perceive anything new? From the Buddhist perspective, very rarely, in ordinary perception, do we perceive anything new. Mostly we are re-perceiving you know, we are re-perceiving with similar associations the things that we've perceived in the past. No wonder we get caught up in this loop of repetition, of doing the same thing again and again and again and again. In Buddhist, in Buddhist terms, this repetition is referred to as sangsara. You know, again, an interesting word in the original language, which means literally to go round in circles. This word sangsara, um, for all of those who know, it's not just a perfume, by the way. <laughs> sangsara is, is going round in circles. Um, and our perception, as well as our ordinary experience, tends to be circular. It's entrapped, it's caught within some kind of radical feedback loop, which forces us into compulsion and propels us into similar experiences again and again and again and again. And if you want a kind of simple idea or understanding of the so-called Buddhist notion of rebirth, you don't need to talk about post-mortem states or states before our present existence. That is it. States of being reborn again and again and again and again into similar forms of behavior in repetitive patterns. Now, if we look at our lives, we can see often that is the case. This is what we're doing. This is the, this is the texture of a lot of ordinary life, of going round in circular. So our experience has a feeling of circularity to it. And I would suggest to you, if you, actually, if you have ever had a feeling of deja vu about what you've been engaged in, believe it. <laughs> it's probably true. <laughs> you know in the sense that you've done something very similar in the past. Now, all of this is to do with the malfunctioning or perception going astray. If you go into the rest of that chain, um, let me start again from the very beginning. What I contact, I feel. What I feel, I perceive. What I perceive, I think about. And eventually, what I think about, I will proliferate. That's the whole chain. So... Just this mere activity, mere activity, I say simply, the activity of perception going astray in this way into repetitive patterns being propelled by habits uh, again and again and again into similar patterns. And I think if we look at our experience and we often look at the experience of others, we will see this patterned behaviour. Something that John mentioned last night in his talk and I was very interested to use the word patterning um, because this whole notion of dependent origination of which he mentioned and he said I'm not going to talk about <laughs> uh, this whole notion of dependent origination uh, in the original, again, language it could be translated as situational patterning the way that I pattern every situation I find myself in and I do it in very similar ways so I bring the same emotional structures I bring the 
well, I say the same, similar emotional structures, similar habit patterns to experience again and again and again, and no wonder the world feels boring. No wonder the world feels flat a lot of the time is because I'm really not experiencing anything new. All I'm doing is experiencing the past. And I'm doing that again and again and again. And the older we get, often the more repetitive this becomes. I hope I'm not depressing you. (laughs) Because... (laughs) Because there is light at the end of the tunnel, which is actually the path of mindfulness. Because the whole job of mindfulness um, and its primary function is to, if you like, bring back this word which is translated as perception, sanya, from going astray. Going astray into the same patterns by attending closely to experience again and again and again and again. Something I think all of us have said in slightly different ways, probably languaging it slightly differently, but we've all said attending closely to experience, standing near to, I think was Christina's, um, phrase when she talked about metta, the standing close to, the ability and the willingness to stand close to. Actually, that is a primary function of mindfulness, which is why mindfulness is metta and metta is mindfulness, is because the job of mindfulness is to stand close to our experience, not get immersed into, but to stand close to. Now, the Buddha uses, I'm going to break off for a second from kind of the more technical thing and get into some of the little images that the Buddha uses about mindfulness. Because mindfulness has many different functions. Let me outline the four primary functions of mindfulness. There are some others, but these are the four primary ones. There is the primary function of what's called simple awareness. Simply discerning and becoming aware of what presents itself in your experience. From anything which you might consider pleasant, and we're not talking necessarily about Vedana here, but anything which you might consider pleasant to really unpleasant stuff that's arising, you know, both externally and internally. This is the discernment, this is a simple awareness of what is arising in your experience. Then there is something which is very interesting, um, not spoken so much about in MBCT and MBSR, which is protective awareness. An awareness of what, in a sense, we allow ourselves to go to, particularly in terms of pain and trauma, and knowing with a wisdom whether to go to that and be with it, or actually at this moment in time to stand back from it wisely. Yes. So this is, this is the, in a sense, this is the opposite of actually being with everything that arises, but actually having the wisdom, the discernment to know when to stand close to something as well. Now, if we're dealing with trauma and real pain, it might not be wise to be recommending somebody to just sit with it. This might be actually the opposite of what they need at this moment of time. And I'll give you some of the images around this where the Buddha makes this really clear. Then there is a form of introspective awareness as well. An awareness which starts to probe our experiences a little bit deeper to find out you know, where the pain is arising, how that pain can be removed in our experience as well. And there's finally one which is actually often, I think, probably seen within perhaps NBCT, MBSR circles as something slightly odd because it's what I would call deliberate concept formation, deliberately reframing something. Now, actually, one of these forms of refraining is metta. Taking the unpleasant person and directing metta towards them. May they be safe and protected. May they be well. May they be happy. It doesn't mean 
that actually that feeling, as we've said all throughout, that the feeling is directly in line with it, but that we can incline the mind in a particular reframing of holding that person here. So these are four primary forms of mindfulness. They are all considered to be satis. Simple awareness, protective awareness, introspective awareness, and deliberate reframing or deliberate concept formation. Now, the Buddha uses many, many images to illustrate this throughout, again, throughout the Pali Canon. They are images, I think, which are very compelling um, in the pictures that they bring before our minds. Let me give you some of these. Let me take the introspective awareness one. The introspective awareness one here is the image of a surgeon who is actually dealing with an arrow wound. The arrow is embedded in somebody's arm. And before removing this, in order to cause as little damage as possible, i.e. more pain, what the surgeon does is he uses a probe to insert into the wound to be able to discern the actual size and the shape of the arrowhead before actually making any other intervention here. So it's actually probing, finding out the shape, finding out the density, finding out the actual, you know, the damage that's been done with this. And this is one of the images. Of course, the probe here is mindfulness. Mindfulness is the probe that's inserted into the wound to find out the extent of the damage, to find out the extent of the problem that we're doing. So when we start to bring mindful awareness to areas of our lives which at this moment in time don't seem entirely perspicuous to us, and we start to open it up in some ways and to look at it in closer detail, we're using mindfulness as a probe. We're beginning to see where the pain arises from. So that's one image. We have an image also of a gatekeeper. And the gatekeeper is used in ancient India. You would have cities with city walls. And on each of the cardinal points of the city wall would be a gate and there would be a gatekeeper. And one of the jobs of the gatekeeper is to discern the friends from the enemies, from the people who he wants to let into the city, who belong there, who are friends of the city, and those who are enemies, who are going to wreak havoc if they're let in. Here we have an image of protective awareness. Knowing what to let in. We have another image of the gatekeeper, and here the gatekeeper is confronted by a messenger, and the job of the gatekeeper is, the messenger says he's got a message for the king who's within the city, and the job here of the gatekeeper is to bring the messenger as speedily as possible to the king, to actually convey the message, to actually get the point across extremely quickly. So mindfulness here, this is really one of discernment, of literally discerning something very, very clearly, getting the message across as quickly as possible. This is another job of mindfulness. There's the image of the cow herder, which we have. The cow herder who, for example, in the growing season when the, the crops are very high and he's got his you know, herd of cows and they're grazing and they're grazing very close, is going to have to watch with great attention what the cows are doing so that they don't stray into the fields and uh, start to destroy the crops. And so the cow herder stays very vigilant, you know, tapping the cows with his little stick to bring them back out of the fields when they start to stray into the fields. And this is mindfulness again, having a protective function. You know, bringing away from things where it shouldn't be straying into, into habitats where it shouldn't be. There's actually another image of, 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 a, of, a, of a bird um, who strays into the wrong habitat 
um, and gets caught. This is a quail that gets caught by a hawk. And the hawk says, uh, the quail says, oh, oh, if I hadn't uh, strayed into the wrong place, then I wouldn't have been caught for you. And the hawk says, look, even if you're in the right place, I would have got you. And the, and the quail says, well, let me go, and I'll sit, and you can see. And what happens is the, um, the quail is dropped into its own habitat, and it hides behind a, a tuft of earth, and the, and the hawk dives at it and breaks its breast, trying to get to the hawk, trying to get to the quail. Um, and again, the right habitat is the habitat of mindfulness. You know, we're in danger when we stray out of mindfulness. This is the image that's being used here. We have the other image of the cow herder, which is the cow herder, in some senses, this is when the, the crops have been harvested. There's just stubble in the fields now, or in the, in the paddy fields. And the cow herder now can take it easy. He can lie under the, under the tree, in the shade, just watching his cows, just occasionally calling them back if they're getting a little bit too far, but he's not having to put a lot of effort into it here. So again, we have an image of vigilance, but now not with a lot of energy into it. It's just kind of just gently, gently bringing the mind back, because the cows are the mind here. Straying into the wrong places, or now actually a little bit more contented, they're grazing there's no danger of them going into the places they shouldn't do. And actually, there's a lot less vigilance required in order to recover um, the cows in this instance. Are you getting bored with all these images? I'll give you one more. <laughs> there's another image. This is, this is probably the most sexist image, so you'll have to forgive me. It is 2,500 years old. <laughs> um, but it's of a man who is uh, given a bowl of precious oil uh, to take to the king. And he has to balance it on his head and he has to walk through the marketplace and he's not to spill one drop of the oil because behind him stands a man with a scimitar and if he drops one drop of oil then he's going to lose his head. To compound the problem, there is the most beautiful girl in the country who's dancing in the marketplace. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the image of having to stay focused <laughs> amongst, if you like, the hubbub. Now, I think it's a lovely image, actually, because actually it shows you how easily we could lose our head. <laughs> yeah. We could just really lose our heads very quickly when we're pulled into the distractions. There are lots more images than these that are used in the Pali Canon, but I hope you begin to get a sense or a feel, because this is really what I want to leave you with this evening, is a sense or a feel of mindfulness having many different functions. It's not just one function. It's not just the function of simple awareness that all too often seems to be the bottom line for the way mindfulness is usually described. You know, simple awareness, just becoming aware or discerning what is arising in the mind or what is arising in our experience and just staying with it. Now, one particular one I think it's, it's really worth highlighting and probably you've picked up on already is the protective awareness one. Yeah. Developing the wisdom, developing the understanding about when it's important to keep something out. Yeah. This is just like, let's again, again use a very simple um, analogy, but one, obviously, that's extremely important. It makes no sense for the alcoholic or the recovering alcoholic to walk into a bar. Yeah. It makes no sense um, for the addict of any form, whether it's a drug addict or an alcoholic, to go to those places where, for example, people are engaged in those addictions until there is a lot of strength there until there is a lot of groundedness in the practice. Equally, it makes no sense for us in our own minds to go to lots of places in a sense which are dangerous, particularly if they're painful. 
and they might exacerbate the situation that we find ourselves in, pull us back into behaviours that we wish to get away from. So mindfulness has these many, many different functions, which I think are very well illustrated by all of the images that I gave you that, that, that's derived from the Pali Canon. Now, I've saved up what I think is the best image for last, which is actually a very interesting image, which is called the parable of the six animals. And here we have an image. Let me, let me try and give this one to you. Imagine what would happen and you've got to imagine the Buddha speaking, if you took six lengths of rope and tied one end of each to six creatures, six lengths of rope and tied one end of each to six creatures, a a snake, a crocodile, by the way, the crocodile's the mind, a bird, a dog, a jackal, and a monkey. You tie them tie the ends of the rope to the animals and then you tie all the ends of the rope into a knot and then what you do is you get a peg and you bang the peg through the knot this is the image that's being given now each of these animals would attempt to pull in different directions trying to return to their favourite haunts all of them trying to get back to their actually what is their feeding grounds in this way. The snake would want to slither off towards the anthill, the crocodile would pull for the river, the bird would fly up into the air, the dog would head for the village, the jackal to the charnel ground, this is where often they get food, and the monkey would head for the trees. Can you picture the scene? (laughs) Now the Buddha tells this story um, to illustrate the undisciplined state of the mind. This is the undisciplined state of the mind. Where in each of these animals represents one of the six senses. So, think about us on our walking paths. (laughs) I don't know if you've noticed this, and perhaps not, I'm sure you're far above this, aren't you? (laughs) But, you know, where the ear is being pulled by sound, it's going off into sound. The eyes are being pulled by sights. You know, the skin, you know, the tactile sense is being pulled by the feeling of the air on the skin. And so on and so forth. And, of course, the mind is constantly, constantly going off into the feeding ground of thought, going off into the feeding ground of papancha. This is the undisciplined state of the mind. So we've got these six animals pulling in all these different directions. We have the stake bang through the, through the knot. Now, in some ways, this almost seems, I don't know, counterintuitive. But if you really want to tame the mind, you bring it to one point. Because this is what's happening. You're bringing it to the point of the actual stake. The stake, of course, is mindfulness. Yeah. This is what you're tying the senses to. You're tying it to the stake of mindfulness. The end of the kind of images that the Buddha uses is actually a lovely picture where all of the animals are lying down together. Having realised that they can't get away from the stake of mindfulness. So mindfulness is being used here particularly as a way of calming the mind calming the animals. In some other texts as well, you'll find the image of an elephant being tied to a post and with lots of you know, pushing and tugging and pulling and everything else. The, anim- the elephant is trying to get away till eventually it realises it can't get away, can't get away, and it lies down and becomes pacified. Now the, now the elephant is trainable. Yeah. So we have all of these images, all of these images which are presented all of the different functions of the mind. Now let's get clear what mindfulness is not. Sometimes we use, in, certainly in English, we conflate two terms. We often use mindfulness and attention 
um, in the same way. Now, in Buddhist psychology, it is very interesting that when we start to talk about mindfulness, mindfulness itself is always considered to be a wholesome function of the mind. It cannot function unwholesomely. Yeah? Contrary to what you might have read in some popular books on Buddhism, actually, that you can be, for example, I don't know, a mindful burglar or a mindful sniper or something of this sort, um, this is not actually what the texts say. The texts, particularly the psychological texts, tend to speak of mindfulness as always being a wholesome function of mind. And as a wholesome function of mind, it doesn't operate alone. And this I find a fascinating part about it. And actually accounts for a lot of the changes I think you can probably see in your clients, even through just a little bit of exposure to mindfulness, is that when there is mindfulness, it will also bring in train all of the other wholesome functions of mind. Albeit for an extremely brief period of time. Now these other wholesome functions of mind, I won't give you the full list because it's quite a long list. But these other wholesome functions of mind are things like self-respect. A feeling of confidence. Certainly friendliness comes in train with mindfulness. Some compassion, a flexibility of mind, um, not the rigidity of mind that we normally see, particularly you know, with, you know, with certain states of mind. What we find is a looseness of mind, a flexibility of mind, an amity of mind, something which is far friendlier than before. Now, I could give you the whole list, but we haven't got time this evening, unfortunately. But what actually happens in a single moment of mindfulness is that all of these get activated, whether it's in simple awareness, whether it's in protective awareness, whether it's in introspective awareness, and whether it's in concept, deliberate concept formation. These get activated. So when we genuinely have a mindful moment, yeah, or moments, let's not get too big, <laughs> when we have genuine mindful moments, it actually brings into play all of these other wholesome functions of mind. Personally, I think this accounts for the changes that we see that can quite rapidly occur. When people get a degree of confidence, they get a degree of self-respect, they get some friendliness, and they start to taste some calmness and fluidity and flexibility of mind, which is often absent in ordinary states of mind. Now, attention, let's because that's the contrast I'm trying to make. Attention, unlike mindfulness, is what's called a universal function of mind. It happens with every moment. You know, every perceptual moment includes a moment of attention. Yeah. So I can train my attention, yeah. but it occurs just naturally with every moment. In fact, you couldn't, according to Buddhist psychological texts, actually be engaged in perceptual acts without momentary acts of attention occurring. So there's always an attentional function in this. You know, this is called chetana, volitional or willful attention. You know, even if I just kind of Note that there's that light over there. Even briefly, there must have been a moment of attention in which I noted it there. And there are actually six other functions of mind which are universal as well. Now we can train attention. And it's actually very important that we train attention. Um, however, attention itself is considered to be not a universally wholesome function of mind, but a variable function of mind. Yeah. It's an ethically variable function. So I can train myself in attention to be attentive to wholesome things, but I can also train myself equally to be attentive to unwholesome things. Now we see that a lot. You know, we, somebody, I think, actually, who is a, a very, very good criminal, a very good burglar, actually has a very heightened sense of attention. Yeah. They have to. 
They've trained themselves in the attentive faculty. So it can take that unwholesome function or it could take a wholesome function. Whereas mindfulness itself is always possessing this wholesome function. Mindfulness actually cares about its object. There's your friendliness. There is your turning towards. There is your meta, not explicitly, not written big in inclinations of the mind, but there is your meta in the simple turning towards something. The desire and the ability to stand close to something, albeit fleetingly. And that will activate these other wholesome functions of mind. Imagine what it would be if we could do that repeatedly, which is actually what you're asked to do in a retreat such as this. We are asked to activate that ability to stand closer to whatever is going on again and again and again and again. Now some of this will be attention but sometimes we will move into that moment of mindfulness, of genuine mindfulness, of genuine contact in the object with friendliness, not mere concentrative attention in this. So this is the function of mind that is really being aimed at. The functions of mind that we talk about in terms of the different aspects of mindfulness. Now, mindfulness might have, in a sense, one taste in its ability to stand close to objects, even to stand close to its wisdom of knowing about what to go to and what to exclude at this moment in time. It still has this function of caring. It still has a meta-function which is underlying these processes. Yeah? So, mindfulness. We move from what I call a simplistic model of mindfulness to a much, much greater nuanced model of mindfulness, where mindfulness is operating in different ways in different aspects of our life and will require us sometimes to move from one function of mindfulness to another function of mindfulness. Now, in the early stages of the development of the training, of course, the primary training is in simple awareness. That is where the primary training starts. This is where we begin to start to explore from that ground base of primary awareness, or just simple awareness. However, the more skillful we become, and I might add that when we start to talk about all of these things in Buddhist training, we're talking about the acquiring of skills, the, the ability to develop that skill of mindfulness which is there, as I said right in the beginning, in the human psyche. Not being Buddhist, but simply human. We develop this skill. Even the notion of nibbana, it's, it sounds always big, doesn't it? You know, he's got to have, have nibbana, nirvana. You know. um, we get big, grandiose ideas of what it's about. Yet nibbana can seem to be seen in, on one hand as the simple skill that comes through mindfulness, the simple skill that arises through the application of mindfulness to unbind ourselves from habitual patterns of perception and the habit functions that drive those habitual perceptions. Yeah. So, Nibbana, instead of being a place, which I'm sure many of you perhaps think it is, you know, it's kind of Buddhist heaven. <laughs> you know, go to Nirvana. Yeah. It sounds like Buddhist heaven. It's not. And in, in Pali and in Sanskrit, Nirvana and, and uh, Nibbana are basically, again, a verb form. These are verb forms. It indicates a doing of something. Yeah. Um, it's an intransitive verb. I mean, literally, it means gone out. You know, it means to unbind the fire from its fuel. Yeah. Now, this is a complex metaphor, but just to indicate what it means, nearly all of us have spoken, and it certainly was spoken about you know, by Christina this morning. We have three fires, which are the driving forces behind unwholesome, unskillful behavior. These um, three fires, 
notice the metaphor. These three fires are considered to be greed, aversion, and delusion. They are the roots, they're considered to be the roots of all of unwholesome psychology. Everything that is unwholesome from your anxieties, your fears, you know, your, to your greeds, miserliness, to avariciousness, all of the subtle distinctions we often make in English of, say, unwholesome states of mind, no matter how subtle they might be, actually have their roots genealogically in the three roots. These three things, of greed, aversion, and delusion. Mindfulness is in the service of actually helping to unbind us from greed, aversion, and delusion. It's also in the service of stopping us fueling further greed, aversion, and delusion. Imagine the fires that are there. If these are fires, then if you've got to keep a fire going, you've got to keep stoking it, haven't you? So what mindfulness is also doing is withdrawing the fuel. You know, it's liberating, if you like, the flame in order for it to go out. Yeah. This is the image that's being used. So we're liberating the flame by letting it go out. We're liberating our greed, aversion and delusion by not fueling it any further in order for it to cease. This is a skill... And why I can refer to it as a skill, along with the skill of mindfulness, is it's something that we can do in ordinary day-to-day life. Rather than seeing Nibbana as one big blinding flash on the road to Damascus, you know, this is actually something we can do in little bits, you know, little Nibbanerings. <laughs> you know, rather than one big Nibbana, we have little Nibbanerings. And a little nibbanering is when you start to unbind yourself from a habit. Now, I don't think it takes you know, as to project our minds too far to see how liberating that often feels, even if it's something fairly minor, when we liberate ourselves from some particular habitual proclivity. When we liberate ourselves from that, we feel tremendous freedom. Yeah. Now that is the freedom that is being aspired to on this path. The freedom from compulsion, by the constant unbinding from habit patterns, which is actually aided and driven by the whole path of mindfulness in all the various ways, through all the various images that I've given to you tonight. It's an image of being free from compulsion. This is the hope, this is the promise of mindfulness in all of its wholesomeness. And I'll end there. And thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.